0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to the 524th episode of the Sales Podcast. I'm Wes Schaefer, the Sales Whisperer, your host. Today we have Robbie Crabtree. He is a former trial attorney with over 100 trials uh, to his credit. uh, Turned entrepreneur, Uh, he teaches folks how to speak, how to persuade, how to get their way. And um, I am fortunate enough that uh, we had an audio difficulty back when we first did the interview. So I got to talk to him twice and uh, take extra notes. Uh, He was doing the interview from Italy. He's out traveling because he can. It's nice when you have your own business and you can just do your own thing, just like uh, I am. As you listen to this, I am in Maine. uh, Seven-day live immersion Brazilian jiu-jitsu training camp. I've never been to Maine. Um, Seeing a buddy of mine from the Air Force Academy. He lives up near where I'm going to be. So I'll see him for a day, and then seven days, really seven and a half days of jujitsu and lobster. It's gonna be epic. Bring it on. So, but it's nice, you know, when you live living your own life, your own way, you have some freedoms, and so that's what this has always been about: is teaching you what works in sales, marketing, negotiation, persuasion. That includes, you know, multimedia, uh, video marketing, social media marketing, audio. Uh, writing, you know, get yourself a book, get a blog, uh, put yourself out there. So uh, it's what I teach in the Sell More of Everything program, sellmoreofeverything.com dot com. You get everything: signed copy of the book, you get the uh, Make Every Sale video series, the workbook, our live calls, uh, private group. So come join us, all right? And uh, pick my brain and uh, let me help you grow your sales. So you can go to week long jujitsu camps or. Fishing trips or take the family on vacation, whatever it is that floats your boat. All right. So sign up and then come back and listen to this episode with Robbie. Robbie Crabtree, traveling attorney, salesman, storyteller. Welcome to the sales podcast. How the heck are you? I'm doing great, Wes. How are you today? I'm good. Did not realize you were doing this from Rome. So uh, I guess you didn't realize you'd be doing this from um, Rome when we booked it, huh? <laughs> I, I, I had
1: no idea. This was like one of those last-minute opportunities that came up. A friend reached out and said, hey, want to go to Rome for, for a few weeks? And I couldn't turn that down. So I said, sure, why not? I love an empty Colosseum, an empty Vatican, and uh, that has been a, a wise
0: decision so far. Yeah, cool. I do like traveling uh, when it's non-peak season. Um, so man, you, um, well, I love your LinkedIn, <laughs> uh, where was it? I got to scroll up. Uh, it was like, what? semi-retired, almost retired attorney, something like that. Yeah, I call it, <laughs> it, it fluctuates either semi-retired or mostly
1: retired because, uh, I just am not doing much of that work anymore. And, and, but I'm still a trial lawyer. And I think it's this weird dynamic where if I tell people, I'm not trying case anymore. They're like, oh, so you're not a lawyer like, no, 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 I'm still a lawyer. I'm still a trial lawyer. I still love that world. If the right case fell into my lap, I would go try it. Uh, but I also am not really actively uh, in that world anymore. So that's why I think the semi-retired and mostly retired seems to make the most sense.
0: So you, you were a prosecutor and then uh, assistant DA in Dallas County, and then did, did you changed change sides? Are are you helping the good guys now instead of the oppressive government putting the thumb on the people? So originally, (laughs) right? Yeah, I I spent the first 100
1: jury trials in my career. So I ended up with 102 total. I tried the first 100 as a prosecutor. uh, And that was mostly in Dallas County. And a large portion of those were violent offenses. So family violence or domestic violence, depending on what you call it, then violent felonies that were anything from robbery, aggravated robbery, manslaughter, murder, capital murder, the the gnarly stuff. And in the final year at the DA's office, I was a child abuse prosecutor. So I basically lived the the life of a law and order SVU person. So like, if you think of that show, that was what I dealt with on a daily basis. Those were the only cases I worked on. Mm. Then when I hit a hundred, I made this decision that I was going to change and go out to private practice. And now there was a, a, a reason behind that. But when I went out to private practice, I went to a firm that did civil rights work. They did Wrongful death work and they did criminal defense work. And the idea was, was take that trial skills that I built as a prosecutor and take them into other areas of the law. So I did a little bit of, of each of those. And my last two cases that I actually tried, though, were criminal defense cases where I ended up with a not guilty verdict on a child abuse case where I thought he was wrongfully convicted and also a not guilty on a murder case where it was on video, but I believed it was self defense and was able to convince the jury to
0: let him go home. Wow. So when you were at the DA, so you had a hundred cases, hundred trials. How many actually go to trial? Would you say you'd like plea bargains, like three to one, ten to one? I mean, how how often do they go to trial versus settle? So on a misdemeanor level,
1: it's super high. It's probably you probably settle twenty five to fifty cases for every one that goes to trial. When you get to felony, though. Becomes a a lot less. So, on a yearly basis, I was handling in the neighborhood of 150 to 300 felony cases. And so, out of those, you could expect that I was trying about 15 to 25. So, you can kind of figure out what that math looks like. But the vast majority work themselves out because, at the end of the day, here's the thing most people don't realize being a lawyer oftentimes is about, about making sure that you minimize risk. You're trying to make sure the worst thing doesn't happen. So, for a prosecutor, that means that they don't go free. For the defendant, right. that means they don't spend the most time in prison. And so you come to this, this middle ground where no one's actually happy. Right. That's how most cases resolve. But I like to go to trial. So a lot my, a lot more of mine went to trial than most trial lawyers.
0: And is that up to you? Or would your boss say, hey, you're doing too much trial work. Go settle some more cases. So luckily, the office I worked in
1: gave us a ton of freedom to to own our cases and really like stood behind us. And wanted us to have kind of that independence and that ownership over our, our cases. So I didn't have any pressure one way or the other. Now, obviously, if you're trying a lot of cases, that gives you an advantage of moving up in the office to try bigger cases, because the more high profile prominent cases, you want people who have done a bunch of trial work to get in there to basically get in those trenches, right? They're not going to get worried when things are going off around them, right? That kind of classic, the soldier who's been in it a bunch of times isn't going to get as scared as that person going into it the first time when they hear a shell going off nearby them. And that's really what you're trying to be as a trial lawyer, is dealing with that chaos and just staying calm in the face of it. So while I wasn't encouraged to try a lot of cases, I was encouraged if I believed that the the punishment was warranted to go to trial to do that. And that's really how I kind of made that determination.
0: Uh, We're going to get into your performative speaking because this is not an interview about lawyering (laughs) but uh i think it lays the groundwork and i'm just interested so uh everybody listening i do have a point believe it or not uh out of those out of those hundred how many did you win i gotta assume you won more than you lost i did win more than i lost i couldn't tell you the exact numbers i can tell you this any any trial
1: lawyer who tells you they've only ever won is not a good trial lawyer because that (laughs) means you were that means you were only trying slam dunk cases you were only trying the easy ones you should be losing cases. There are a lot of cases where the right thing to do is to go to trial even though you know you're going to lose because you're still giving the, the victim or their family their day in court, their ability right. to speak their truth, to get it out of there and hopefully heal.
0: Mm-hmm. So sometimes
1: you go in there and know you're going to lose. That's just the nature of the game. And so you do everything you can. And if you get really good, you start winning cases that other people didn't. So I had a bunch that I took over that were previously hung juries and then ended up winning those cases as a result when I came on and took them over. So you can win a case that has been tough before, but you're going to lose. So out of those, you know, I'd probably say is, you know, about 70-30 would be about the, the win-loss. Um, what's
0: that attorney with the, um, what is it, leather jacket, you know, the, the frills? Well, oh, that super famous attorney. Like, he's famous for winning every case, like a 1,000 cases or something. Um, gonna bother me now he, he wore the old buckskin jacket leather jacket i i i'm
1: drawing a blank but there are <laughs> certainly attorneys who have said that they've won every case and like i said jerry, if, jerry spence oh yeah yeah yeah. so Jer, jerry spence sure uh there's i mean look there's a lot of great lawyers uh it also depends on when you're trying them if you're trying them in today's day and age yeah you, you can't win them all because the way cell phone video and the way kind of discovery works. You have to give everything over to the other side. If you're a prosecutor, you're going to lose. Like, and I don't have to know, the defense doesn't tell me anything. So oftentimes I had no idea what was going to come at me. So I'm dealing with witnesses that are unexpected, that are saying brand new things. I'm having to piece together evidence at the last minute. That's what I'm saying. If you're you're a trial attorney, especially in the the criminal world as a prosecutor, defense attorney, you're going to lose. That's the nature of the game. And so that's really kind of just the, the world you live in if you're trying cases these days.
0: You said something earlier, it was about like, you know, asking the questions and um, you said minimizing the risk, right? I always mention attorneys a lot of times in my training talking about how you don't want to ask a question you don't know the answer to, right? So, and I tell people that in sales, you know, now a lot of times, obviously we don't know the answer when we are, when we're trying to uncover we, we have an idea the, the, the customer comes to us uh, with a request, you know, a proposal, a demo or something. So we have to make some assumptions, uh, an educated guess, and start asking questions to kind of narrow the, the the conversation to try to stack the odds in our favor, right? Is Is there an art to that? It, do you just learn? Do you just, is it trial by fire? You just figure it out? Or is there some some ways you can kind of help us you know, shorten that to be a better investigator, I guess, and a better question asker? I think so much of it is knowing where you want to get to
1: at the end and then reverse engineering back from there, right? I think too many people go into a call with just like a blank slate in front of them, like a, a wide open mind. They have no idea where they want the call to go. Or this isn't to say that you only have one idea. The truth is what you should be thinking about is what are the different outcomes that can go in this call? So you may have four. You may say these are the four that oftentimes come up. Well, if we identify what these four are, we start pattern recognizing to say, hey, this one is going this direction. So now I'm in control and I'm asking the right questions that are going to guide me to that outcome. Or you know how to pivot out of that because you've seen this trap before and you can say, oh, this is going this way. Here's how I move it out. This is where Having that plan of attack before you go into the conversation is so important. And not just a plan of attack, but also understanding each potential outcome and how you drive to which one you want to get to in the way that you question. And so, like as a trial lawyer, for instance, I oftentimes would ask questions where there were multiple answers that the witness could give me. But I had set the witness up. Where no matter what they gave me, the answer was going to be good for me. Because when they gave me that answer, I was going to go down one way. If they gave me a different answer, I was going to go down a different way. I can't tell you how many witnesses would finally figure that out. And they would just sit there and be like, it doesn't matter what I say. You're going to make me look bad, aren't you? And, and, and the truthful answer for myself is yes. Yes, I am. That's exactly what this is designed to do. Where if you ask the right questions because you have a plan of attack, and you know all these outcomes and where you want to drive, you'll never ask a bad question.
0: Now, I know somebody listening to this might say, well, yeah, it's because you already deposed the witness. You already had the odds stacked in your favor. Now you're just trying to get it out in the open. Uh, you know, I can't depose my prospects. They just call me and they want to set a, a demo or get into negotiations. So how, how can we do this in the sales world? Well, Wes, let me tell you this. I didn't ever get to depose
1: witnesses. So every defense witness I was ever called in one of my cases, I had no idea what they were going to say. I didn't even know who they were before they went up onto the witness stand. So I was in that same same world of, I don't know what they're going to say. And so you know what that, that means you have to do? You have to pay really close attention to every signal you're getting from that person. How they, their, their tonality when you first approach them. Are they receptive? Are they warm? Are they cold? Are they shy? What are they saying to you without saying the words? Then we start figuring out what is the tactic I'm going to use with them? Because you shouldn't be approaching every call the same. Just like I wouldn't approach every witness the same. If mama is coming on to testify about the defendant and why you shouldn't go to prison for a long time, and she's this sweet old lady, I'm not going to be vicious and try to tear mama apart because all, all that's going to do is hurt me. But if I've got girlfriend who is baby mama number five and has an attitude from the moment she walks up, up there, guess what I get to do? I get to have tons of attitude and push on her. So first off, we've got to identify what is that tone? What is kind of the dynamic of that initial, that initial meeting? Then when we go into those questions again, this is why we're thinking about the end first. If we know, hey, here are the main outcomes I can get. I can get a prospect who is absolutely ready to buy. I can get a prospect who might be ready to buy, but it's going to have these objections. I have a prospect who's probably not ready to buy, but there may be a way to move him if I can, can ease this concern. There's a prospect who's a definitely no now but I'm warming up for a sequence later on. There's a prospect who is a definite no now and I need to get out of the call immediately. We start identifying those and figuring out what those clues are once we have that outcome and then we work backwards. At the beginning, then we tell which one they're going to fit into that bucket and drive them in that way.
0: So to be great in sales, do I have to be like Tom Cruise and a few good men and practice everything and dry run or can I just have my notes and just enter the arena? So I think there's a delicate balance here, right?
1: We want to be prepared, but we don't want to be robotic. We don't want to just say, oh, here's my script. And they said this thing. So I'm just going to go to this thing. And here they said this thing. I'm going to say this thing. Because oftentimes you're not actually listening to what they're saying. You're hearing them. You're not listening. And there's a distinction there. Because oftentimes, if you're actually listening, you can move people in a more convincing way. For instance, I love being sold to us. Absolutely love it. And I can't tell you how many people cold call me, cold DM me, whatever it is. Hey, Robbie, I've got this offer. Boom, boom, boom. And my response oftentimes will be like, great, send me the details. Like, I just want to know the details because if the details make sense to me, I don't need to be sold. Like, I'm good. And they'll they'll hear that. Hey, sure. It sounds great. Send me the details. And the next thing they do is, can we book time to talk to you on on a 15-minute call? So what they were doing is using their script to say, oh, he's interested. The next move is to schedule a call. But if you actually listen to what I was saying, it was, I want the details. I don't need the call. The call, I don't have time for that. So essentially all you told me when you followed up with that response is you're not listening to me. You're hearing the answer that you want and moving it to a scripted answer. I don't don't like that. Most people being sold don't like that. Listen to what they have to say and use their answers to guide them along that path that maybe you want them to take.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, you've got to convince 12 people Right. And and that's obviously a complex sale. <laughs> um when in the commercial world, you know, if I've got a conference room and you know, I've got three or four or five people, you know, from my prospects company, uh, how do you know like how do you know who's the decision maker and who do you focus on in a you know four or five person scenario?
1: Some of that comes down to research, right? Figuring out who, who makes that decision at the company. So some of that's just what I call oppo research, right? And we would always do that as an attorney. You're looking at every piece of information you can possibly find to be the most well-equipped going to that case. Jury members, same way. I would look. I would figure out everything I could. And during the entire trial, I'd be paying attention to them, right? But if you're just going in blind, let's say you really don't know. You have no idea. You didn't have a chance to figure out who the decision maker is. You've got five people. and You're just like, I, I, I really don't know. Then what I would be looking for are cues from those people when you're speaking to them, who is paying the most attention. That may not be the decision maker, but that can be your advocate. And sometimes what we want to find is not necessarily the decision maker, but the advocate, the one who's going to push and be able to convince the decision maker because they have a closer relationship to that person. And this is one of the tricks that I would use in in jury trial. Some of the worst that, so let's go back to that murder trial that I was trying. It was on video. My client had killed his brother. It was terrible. He had said some bad things. He had made some mistakes. It wasn't a good case on those grounds. But I also believe that it was self-defense. I absolutely did. I didn't think that he should be punished and go to prison for acting in self-defense and protecting himself and ultimately his girlfriend as well. So when I was going to this closing argument, my goal was to convince one person, 100% of the way, that I was right. Because I knew if I could convince one person 100% of the way, they'd go back to that room, they'd be my evangelist. And then who is a jury more likely to listen to? Me, who clearly has a vested interest in the outcome of the case, or a jury member who's one of their peers and they want to listen to? That's how I tend to think about it. Let's find that one. And once you know you've got one, move on to the second. And once you get the second, move on to the third. And you can get those. Those cues and read them so you can actually get to those advocates, those evangelists, and hopefully the decision maker as well by paying attention to who's giving you signals, who's maybe nodding a little bit, who's open body language, who's leaning in when you say something, even shaking their head no that they don't agree with you is still a good signal that somebody's paying attention and you need to kind of dive into that person.
0: Is humor okay or when should it be avoided? You know, Can you, can you overdo it? So I think you
1: can overdo it. I don't think it should be avoided. I think even in sensitive topics, it can lighten them and make it more approachable to talk to. I think it's a very useful technique. Now, that being said, I try to use a little bit of humor and not much because I want people to realize I'm a real person and that they can connect with me, but I don't want them to see me as trying to be silly or goofy or trying to essentially take away the the emphasis on what we're actually there to talk about. I think sometimes people use humor as a crutch when they're not confident about what they're delivering. It's a very easy thing to be be like, oh, I was funny. They liked me. They laughed at me. But if you didn't make the sale, and oftentimes if they just think you're funny and laughable at, they're not going to go with you because you aren't demonstrating that level of confidence confidence that they're looking for. So again, we want to blend that. Use a little bit of humor just to make it where you're personable, but let's not overdo it where it becomes, hey, that's just a jokester. Well, at some but we can't really take seriously. That's not somebody who's going to grow into a bigger role. Like we, we want to be, be seen as somebody that can be trusted.
0: Yeah. So what is, what is performative speaking? What does that mean? So performative speaking is what I think speaking really comes down to. And it's this
1: idea that perf- a, a speech, right? Anytime we're talking, whether that's in front of a big group, in front of a small group, a pitch to a boardroom, a pitch to one person even, we are taking part in performance art and uh, the fact that words have the ability to bring change. So essentially performative means ever relating to performance art and performativity means the ability for words to bring about change. That's what I think speaking is, especially when it's done right. So when it's done in ways that create musicality, when it's done in ways that create emotional hooks, when it's done in ways that really bring your, your words to life and make people see pictures, that's where you can move and That's where you can change them. And that's why I call it performative speaking.
0: Yeah, but man, now I just feel like I'm being fake. You know, I just want to be myself, man. I just, I can't be all scripted. I get all bound up and um, yeah, I don't really need to script all this out. Very very common. I think
1: these days, everybody is, is using the word authenticity in an inauthentic way and I'll explain what I mean by that because it's a very big buzzword right now. And authenticity is great. We don't want you to be fake, but a lot of people are using authenticity as a shield to not improve, to not push themselves to be better, to say, I can't do those things because I'm being authentic to who I am. Personal growth means you are being inauthentic in a way because you're always growing into a new person. So if you're gonna say, well, I'm just gonna be authentic, you're never gonna grow. Is essentially what you're telling me when you're trying to use that as a shield so if we're thinking about that i'm not going to tell you like i'm not going to talk like you know i i'm from Bo- like i'm never going to talk like i'm from boston for instance right like i'm not going to be inauthentic and use a boston accent when i'm speaking
0: everybody in your crew identifies as either big mac burger mcnuggets or McCrispy sandwich but you're the filet fish sandwich all day that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. ba 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 ba
1: However, let's back this up. I have multiple sides of myself that all form one authentic Robbie Crab tree. I have trial lawyer, trial lawyer based in Dallas. I have grew up in Houston. I have baseball player because I played in college. I have surfer. I have CrossFit, CrossFitter. I have all these different pieces. I work in the tech space in Silicon Valley. I spend a lot of time in LA. I can speak different languages depending on my group, right? I can speak creator. I can speak founder. I can speak entrepreneur. I can speak business executive because those are all worlds that are authentic to who I am. They're not all I am, but they're one piece. And so what I tell people is performance speaking is about figuring out what that that blend needs to be in that specific setting, using things that you connect to personally. So this is where I actually say performance speaking is about creating a vibe or a mood in your audience. And we do that by drawing upon things that in the past have created that vibe or mood in yourself. So for me, I draw a lot of inspiration from my favorite show, The West Wing. Very true to me, very authentic to me. And I use it as a reference point. This is where it all comes down to being authentic, but pushing yourself so you can be the best version of yourself instead of hiding behind this shield of, whoa, 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 I'm just going to be authentic and it's all going to be okay.
0: All right, all right, all right. I'm not going to lie. I did have some
1: Matthew McConaughey in my head as we were talking about this. (laughs)
0: Like, dude, that's like so tubular, man. Like, wow. Uh, Very cool. So can this. Could this be learned by anybody? Should it be learned by people in sales, CEOs? Like, who's this geared for? Yeah, I mean, I think there's,
1: there's a, a couple ways of thinking about this. Can anybody learn it? Sure. Like, straight up, anybody can learn this. Can they learn it at the levels that they necessarily need that make the most sense? Probably not. i would say this is this, my philosophy and what I teach is really geared towards good to great to elite speakers, it is not something that a beginner necessarily needs. It's not something that an intermediate needs because there are better uses of your time and better use of your resources to get there. You need the basics. What we're talking about in performance speaking is much higher level because we're going on my experience as a trial lawyer in these kinds of cases. And so what I say is it's, it's for those salespeople who are trying to become sales leaders or lead a team in their company or trying to be you know that big salesperson who's, who's closing you know eight, nine figure deals and like, they need every advantage that they can have. 1% matters more than anything else. Like, we're not looking for the people trying to go from 20% to 50%, 50%. We're looking at the people who are trying to go from 90 to 95 or 96 to 97, right? That's what we're dealing with. So salespeople, executives, and especially like entrepreneurs and founders are big ones as well. Anyone who's really running their own business, who needs to be able to connect with a team, connect with investors and connect with customers. This this skill
0: is, is what you need in order to connect with them, build that company and really be successful. So if I'm hearing you right, I mean, it, it could help the local realtor be better, but it's, it's more for the, the startup CEO, you know, 50 or 90 or 300 people maybe going for another venture round or trying to land that, that major, that whale that, that'll put them on the map.
1: So it's not just, I mean, I would say even if you're like a, a one person and you're, sale, you're a sales leader and you're bringing in, you know, 500K a year, that would make sense for you to join in. But I, I always say like there are, you know, if we think about the 80-20 rule, if you're just like a beginning salesperson, this is like you, you can learn a lot from reading the stuff I put out there talking about it. But like really kind of that work in performance speaking is probably a little bit higher level. And I always try to tell people, and I think this goes back to sales, Right if you try to sell to everybody, you sell to no one. And if like you can't sit there and say, this isn't for you, there are better options for you at a lower budget or a lower time investment to get to the the foundation that we need to actually build upon. And so I always try to say, this is really for those people who have some expertise, have some skills that they've built up and are looking now to build on top of that by building these soft skills, these communication skills that are really the key to elevate. And if we think about it, Early in your career, you're basically, if we think about it like a tree, early in your career, you're building this deep skill set. As you progress in your career, you're trying to get broad so you can appeal to more people, so you can oversee people, manage them, lead them, right? So the reason it's a tree is at first you're growing the trunk and then you're growing the leaves out. And one of those big branches that covers this is effective communication, strategic communication, and public speaking. That's really where this comes in. So I
0: know the. I love what you said about using authentic in an inauthentic way. Uh, but on the flip side, I know early on, like when I was learning public speaking and, and more than public speaking, like how to sell from the stage, it, was, it felt inauthentic to me. I felt like I was manipulating the audience. Like, I'm, like I had this ulterior motive. I'm coming up to speak, but I want you to sign up for this course. How... How does someone rationalize, you know, wrap their brain around it like it's, it's okay, you know, to show up uh, with the idea to, to lead them towards something, I guess, as long as it's good for them, right? The way I think about this is there's three, three ways of thinking
1: about it. Persuasion is when somebody knows it's good for them and you're just kind of giving them the fuel to get there. Manipulation can be either good or bad. The good is when you know it's good for them, the other person doesn't, and you're going to get them there anyways. The bad manipulation is when you know it's not good for them and and you know like you can get them there anyways. You could also call the bad one coercion, right? If we want to. So if we want to make it into three, we could say persuasion, manipulation, and coercion. Manipulation though has this bad connotation. And I think that that's actually wrong because think about it like this. Your, Your child doesn't know that the stove is hot. And so you may manipulate them to not touch the stove because you don't want them to burn themselves. They don't realize why you're saying, don't touch that, but you know best. So you're trying to do them good by, by essentially stopping them, right? And so that's how I think about manipulation, whereas persuasion is you're talking to somebody, a prospect who knows what you're offering is good for them, but they just need that final kind of like reassurance that, hey, this is a guy that I can trust. This is a, a woman I can trust and I, I'm good to go with them. So that's where these dynamics come. And I would say on a stage like that, what we're trying to do is sell to the right people, Because it's not a fit for everybody. And what we should be doing when we're selling from the stage is identifying and letting people know, hey, this is who it's for. If you're one of those people, this is something that's going to help you. If you're not one of those people, it's not going to help you and don't sign up because it's going to be a waste of your time, your money, and it's also going to be bad for me. And none of us want that. So I think that's where we have this distinction between persuasion, manipulation, and coercion.
0: And so- in, in this training is, are you, I guess it's applicable to all of these situations, like speaking from the stage, selling from the stage, or just uh, a private, you know, complex sale, you know, in, in the boardroom. So, yeah, I mean, we, we, you know,
1: in the program we're, we're focusing when I teach this, because I want people to be well-rounded speakers. I think the, the problem is too many people get put into one little box as a speaker. They're a keynote speaker up on stage or they're a salesperson who does one-on-one calls, or, you know, they pitch to investors. And it's always like this, like, Hey, I just, I'm just good in a boardroom at presenting with slides or I'm just good up on stage. I'm just good one-on-one. Why can't we be good at everything? Why can't you be good at all of those dynamics? Because they're all speaking. They all have the same strategies, the, the same techniques that are used, the same tactics. It just takes understanding how they all fit together. There are differences, but they're not as different as people think. And so, you can start to blend these. And again, a lot of this comes from my trial background because in jury selection, I'm speaking to 80 people very openly just kind of getting questions out there trying to basically get information's discovery, right? Then I'm dealing with witnesses where I'm asking open-ended questions where I know I want them where I want them to go. Then cross-examination, I'm leading them where I want them to go. Then the opening statement, I'm telling a story, closing argument is essentially it's closing closing the deal, right? All these different pieces and they're different audiences, right? We have 80, we have 12. We have one, I'm having to talk to a judge as well who's seen as like a higher authority. So I've got to speak differently. That's speaking up as though you're speaking to management or to the decision maker. And so you learn all these dynamics and you realize, oh, they're not that different. Like I can do all these things if I understand the, the actual fundamentals. And so that's what we work on. So you can really walk away with this full understanding, this full
0: grasp of being a great speaker. When do you use slides versus just talking?
1: That's a great question. And and the real answer is it depends. It depends on how long the presentation is, who the presentation is to, what your style of speaking is. So I will generally say it is a good idea to have some level of slide oftentimes just so that people can anchor what you're saying to a slide. Because they will remember, hey, when this slide was up, Wes was talking about this point. When this slide was up, Wes was talking about this point. Otherwise, you have to be so good as a speaker, to signpost and guide people with just your words, it's very, very challenging for most speakers to do. It is possible, but it is much harder. So if you have the ability to use some very simple slides, do not make them complicated. Do not put a bunch of words on them. Do not make them distracting because then nobody will listen to you. But if it's a simple slide that somebody can anchor
0: your your words to, that's a win. So... I understand that it's hard to do without the slides, uh, but do you, do you have a feel either way, or has it been studied? Like, like the most impactful speaker, you know, is it one that doesn't use slides, you know, or just uses them well, and it it can be wonderful either way. I mean, if we look at history's greatest speakers, they didn't use slides.
1: So there's clearly an argument for if you're a great speaker, you don't need slides. I mean, you look at a Martin Luther King, you look at a JFK, a Winston Churchill. You look more recently at like an Amanda Gorman who delivered the inaugural address. You don't need slides because you can stand out. So if you're that, that level, go for it. But slides do increase the ability for somebody to retain information. When you're speaking to them, it helps them actually remember what you're saying. And especially if that slide is not just words, if it's an image that somehow relates to what you're talking about. Those are the best kinds of slides where you're giving that visual learner a visual to go along with the, uh, the audio that they're hearing so they can pair those two together and say, oh, now I understand the concept that Wes was talking about.
0: How long would you, th- how long do you think it would take to like to nail it? Because it's, I, I use a hand after doing this a long time now, I've got a handful of slides that I go to regardless of the audience, regardless of the talk, you know, as long, obviously if it's sales and marketing, I've got four or five slides that I always use to drive home the point. Um, And then everything else, you know, I'll, I'll customize it. I'll, I'll make it, you know, one time I, the theme was golf, you know, I was the speaker. So I redid, my slides from a golf perspective, right? Golf analogies, golf imagery, but it's so obviously it was not the same talk I've delivered a hundred times. Uh, although the foundation of it was, you know, it didn't change. Um, you know, how long does it take? And, and should we have like this? Oh no, this is my. These are my twenty-seven slides. I'm just going to always give the exact same thing. You'll know what you're going to get. Versus, like, like I'm doing. Here's here's the core. And, you know, in a way I'm winging it, right? Because there's, that was the first time I ever gave that golf talk around the seven deadly sins of selling. You know what I mean? So I call that extemporaneous speaking, right? It's prepared,
1: but without notes in a lot of ways. And so I would call it prepared, fully prepared speaking. When you have it memorized, when you, you're the talk you're talking is 27 slides. I know exactly what I'm going to deliver. That is a prepared talk. Personally, and many of the best speakers that I know and talk to on a regular basis, we all agree that extemporaneous speaking tends to be the most impactful. Because by changing up each time, what you're, what you're doing is, one, making it audience specific. Two, you're paying attention to the cues you're getting from the audience. And three, you don't sound robotic. You don't sound predictable because some of it is new. Sometimes you say something new in a new way that really connects with somebody and you left something out. You know what? That's totally okay because nobody else knows. The only person who knows is you, and I think there's a real beauty in kind of that that dance. It's almost like if you ever watch Game of Thrones, Arya's instructor originally taught her how to fight. You know, as with the sword, and it was all about like the water dance kind of style. It was much more fluid, much more with the flow, and as a result, was much more beautiful. That's what I think speaking should be as well. So, like, I hate when I can tell that it's a prepared speech. And It's just like, yeah, they've given this speech ten thousand times. it's the same thing over and over, and they're bored with it, they don't enjoy it. they're there because like you know you got paid, you're coming and and I'm just telling you the same stuff, but like let's let's change it up, let's make it interesting for the speaker as well. I think there's a value in getting excited every time we speak, so making it a little bit new doesn't have to be like brand new, but like a little bit just to test some things, like how else do we improve like just just a b test constantly pull a little little thing out and add a little new thing in see how it plays plays well leave it in if it plays poorly take it back out like that's how we get better
0: do i have to be from jersey and wear a hoodie to be able to just drop f bombs uh, at, at every talk like gary v oh man i you know what
1: i he he's got he's got his style and he's been super successful and just hats off to him for what he's done and what he's built. I can't pull that off. Like I can't sit there and curse and scream and do all that. The true story is I tried to scream a lot when I first started as a pro lawyer. I thought that that's what meant I was being passionate and dramatic. And that was, you know, I thought, you know, you can't handle the truth kind of moment going back to a few good men, right? I thought that was going to be me. I was going to yell and scream and it was going to land and the jury was going to love me. And guess what? It did not work because it wasn't who I was. And right. it, it just put them off. And so I had to realize, you know, that's not me. I have a different style. And I think we all need to figure out what is that style? If you like to curse, th- and that's true to who you are, and like it can connect with your right audience because you're speaking to the right people and curse. But also realize to some audiences, that's going to put them off. Now, some audiences love it. Again, this is where we make these dynamics. Who do we want as our customer? Who do we want connected to us? Who do we want as our kind of audience, our community? Speak their language and, and you'll attract the right ones speak the wrong language and you're going to track the wrong ones and you're going to hate your life. So like if you're a curse all day long and you try to be super polished and prim and proper and you don't curse and you just speak, you know, high British English, you're going to hate yourself and you're going to hate hate the the talks you're doing. So like,
0: don't do that either. (laughs) So how do we dress? Uh, I'm going to Orlando next month, Uh, about 175 people, uh, very laid back group. Uh, I've already spoken to them once over Zoom. Uh, I've had some interviews with four or five of their salespeople. I mean, they're very laid back, very personable. Uh, The last time I was in, where was I? I think I was in Orlando. Um, And using the golf analogy, right? I knew I was the last talk before their half, before lunch, and they were all going golfing after that. I was at a golf resort. And so, like, I just, I wore golf attire, right? I mean, uh, polo and khakis and, you know, not a suit and tie. Like, how do you know how to dress for the audience? I think you kind of
1: painted a really nice picture there because you were talking at a golf, like a golf conference, basically. And your theme was golf. And as a result, you did like golf attire. So that makes perfect sense to me. And I think that 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 is a great way to think about it. Are are we speaking, are we dressing the right part for the audience we're speaking to? You nailed it there. For myself, oftentimes, like I'm going to be much more in a suit and, and a shirt with no tie. It's very much my style. And it also very much fits where I come from. I'm a trial lawyer who now is no, like it's kind of that, if we think back to it, semi-retired trial lawyer. I still kind of look like a trial lawyer when I'm dressed that way, but not fully because I've lost the tie. I'm a little bit like I go sockless with loafers, so- like it's just a little bit different look. And again, it's, it's memorable. And I, I actually think when we're speaking, we want our dress to be memorable, but in a good way. Not where it was like, oh, did you see what he was wearing? But more like, huh, that was interesting. And, and it's kind of like that. It, it brings a smile to their face. We're like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder why, why he decided to wear that. Uh, I like that kind of idea where you're pushing the envelope just a little bit, but not to the point where it gets overwhelming to the audience where that's the only thing they can focus on.
0: I think you should try like a full suit on the top, and then like cargo pants, cargo shorts, and flip flops on the bottom. Try it. A, a B test that, man. I, I think I,
1: I I'm I haven't quite gone for the full uh short suit yet, but you know
0: who who knows? Maybe maybe one day we'll get there. Dude, it could work. I, I get my finger on the pulse, man. I charge big bucks for this <laughs> consultation normally. Oh man, I appreciate I appreciate getting for free by being here. <laughs> So, man, where do where do people go? You did. I notice uh, an acquisition, a little merger for your business. So it's actually so I worked with a company
1: called On Deck for a little while with performance speaking. We're helping their founders uh, to do that. I still do some work with them, but we also took performance speaking back out on its own at this point. So very excited for, for just kind of running the business and growing it. So we've we've grown. The business by, by quite a bit in the last, I don't know, say three-ish months. So, so we've, we've brought on about five more employees to start running it uh, more efficiently and just grow it. So exciting times there and lots of great lessons with, with On Deck and kind of what, what went on there and still do a number of talks. In fact, doing a talk tomorrow in one of their organizations, which will be a lot of fun as well.
0: So, so where should we direct people?
1: What website? Best place to to find me, you can find me on my personal website. That's robbycrabtree.com. If you are looking to follow me on social, which I'm pretty active on, you can, can join on either Instagram, which is at the Robbie Crab, or Twitter, which is at Robbie Crab. Those are the two that I'm most active on. Of course, LinkedIn is there too, which is at the Robbie Crab. You can always ask me questions. There'll be a new cohort that's coming out later in the fall. I have a current group coaching program that's running so if you're ever interested in that feel free to reach out happy to talk to anybody who is looking to level up their speaking really become that person that they want to when it comes to communication connect with people and really just like own their storytelling and own their
0: voice cool man all right i am linking out to that and uh well enjoy your own man thanks for coming on the show appreciate it wes have a great night all right man you too cheers so how persuasive are you when was the last time you took a speaking or communication or persuasion or negotiation class I've done all of those, uh, and having experts on the show, you know, I get to pick their brain over 500 times now and counting. Um, you know, I like what he talks about here. You know, do you need to be a showman, how to properly use emotion, Uh, how to get comfortable being uncomfortable? Are you willing to put in the effort? You know, the old adage is, um, you know, if you're willing to do anything, you know, to do anything right, you must be willing to do it wrong, right, for a long time, to really truly master something. You know, it took Robbie, I think he said, what, 10 or 20 trials before he started cracking the code, you know, jiu-jitsu. I've done it wrong for a long time and slowly gotten kind of good. So are you willing to stay at it? How good are you at sales? How good are you in this new evolving sales, in this crazy world? You can't be stagnant, okay, the things that worked, even, you know, 18 months ago, it don't work as well now. What are you doing about it? How are you doing your research? Can you make people laugh in these crazy times? Are you in a mastermind group? A lot of good, tough questions. I hope you have answers for them. If you need help answering those, hit me up, okay? Pick a time to talk from my website or just join up, sellmoreofeverything.com. I will help you grow, I promise. Thanks for listening. I'll go sell something.